How's it going, everybody? These are the worst date movies ever. My name is Greg Knox, and can you believe it? I'm joined on the show once again by Miroslava Hartman. Mero, how's it going? Hi, hi. I'm so excited to be back. Awesome, awesome. Now, Mero, I have a question. It's actually a bit of a serious question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you hate me for making you watch all these films? Uh, honestly, I feel like it's a noble challenge every time. Now, I can't say that about every single film that you've reviewed on the show, and I have been enjoying this season very much. Um, I don't think you could persuade me to do the August Underground trilogy with you. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been interesting. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> I doubt that I would have much to say. <laughs> oh, I doubt that very much. I'm sure you would have many, many valuable insights to add to the episode. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I get what you mean. They're not exactly sort of fun films to watch. But basically what, what I'm sort of trying to say in a way is that for the show, I've made you watch Irreversible and the entire back catalogue of Gaspar Noé. We did Audition, which is a film you watched and you quite famously said to me that you didn't want to watch again <laughs> but i forced you to watch it again because i'm a prick and then pretty much for this show we've watched pretty much every single kind of well-known lars von trier film together as well so we have which was a very worthwhile exercise um i wouldn't say lars von trier unlike gaspar noe for example is my favorite director um i certainly have uh, there are certainly films of his that i really love like nymphomaniac i hope we'll get to talk about that a little bit um but it's still i always feel like a lars von trier film is worth watching Cool. And we're going to do a lot of that on the show today. You'll be very pleased to know because, as you'll know, when you clicked on the episode for, the, you know, to listen to this show today, we're going to be talking about Antichrist by Lars von Trier. Hooray! A film with a talking fox in it. Hooray! A film with genital mutilation in it. Hooray! All acorns. kinds of good stuff. Don't forget the acorns. Oh, we can't forget the acorns. Yes, lots of acorns <laughs> as well. And we'll get onto that in the show itself. Um, but, as always with these shows, I have to point out to my audience that you are listening to the worst state movies ever. Kind of mentioned it just then, but there may be, well, there are. I always say maybe for some reason at the start of these shows. I don't know why. I guess it depends on the person. But if you are of a kind of queasy nature, you may be disturbed by some of the content that we're going to talk about today because there's some kind of fucked up stuff that happens in the uh, second half of this film. And we're going to be talking about the film from beginning to end in great detail. So, you know what? As always, going to be spoilers. So watch out for those. Um, now, very quickly, before we start the episode, I should say that we had the very sad news a couple of days ago about the passing of Joey Jordison, who was the drummer of Slipknot, as someone who was a big fan of Slipknot back in the day, back in my new metal days. Um, I would like to dedicate this episode in tribute to uh, Joey Jordison's legacy. I'm sure... That's what he would want. And I'm um, very honoured to be part of this because Joey Jordison made a huge difference in my life, um, arguably more as the guitarist and co-founder of Murder Dolls, uh, which I remember very fondly from my early teenage years. Me too, me too. There used to be a regular fixture on Crane TV when we were growing up. So yeah, uh, on that note, let's uh, get on with the show. This is Antichrist by Lars von Trier, Chaos Reigns. Oh, 
Antichrist was directed by Lars von Trier and it came out in 2009. Now, Miro, I have an interesting question to ask you. Of all the directors in the history of cinema, is Lars von Trier the ultimate worst date movie ever director? He has directed many films that you would consider to be a bad date movie. I think that's very, very fair to say. Um, is he the worst? Uh, no, I don't think so, because um, all of his films have something exceptionally grounded about them. And they always feel, I want to say theatrical. I mean, they're very, they're very formalist. There's always a sense that you are being presented with a work of art. You know, whether it has operatic overtones like Antichrist, you know, which in many ways is a, a Baroque horror art piece, um, or, mm-hmm. you know, quite, quite um, literal theatrical rigging in the case of Dogville and Mandalay. Um, there's always a sense of separation, I feel, between what you're seeing on the screen and life as we know it, which is is not the case with some of the more... Um, you know, realist uh, work that we've covered on the show. Mm, that's true. That's true. But it is interesting that he's made a lot of films that do appear on sort of these kinds of lists, as we're going to go into in a bit when I talk about his back catalogue. Now, how many of Mr. Von Trier's films had you seen before we started doing research for this show? Only two. Um, my first Von Trier film was Antichrist. It was part of my DVD collection until um, very recently. Um, and, um, and I bought that film solely on the merit of it being um, one of the most provocative um, and controversial films ever to have been uh, released. And also the name. This was me kind of in my late teens, kind of um, extreme metal um, misanthropic phase. Um, and then Nymphomaniac, which I saw at the Oxford picture, at the Phoenix picture house in Oxford when it came out in uh, 2013. Um, both parts. Um, I saw that with my sister who had just turned 18. That was quite an interesting experience <laughs> watching that with my, with my little sister, um, who was completely unfazed. I mean, I have to say, like, right. her tastes are much more, um, I'd say conventional. Mainstream. Yeah, yeah, much more mainstream. You know, she would happily um, rewatch Taxi, you know, the French film about Taxi Driver. <laughs> okay. Not Taxi yeah, Driver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but she's just completely unfazed, really took it in her stride, and it made a huge impact um, seeing that, you know, on, on the big screen. Um, okay. I hadn't o- seen On any- her or you? On me, on me. As I've said, okay. like um, <laughs> I don't feel like um, that it impacted maybe her that much. Um, so I'd only really seen those two films. So two out of three depression trilogy installments. Um, I had heard about um, his other films, and um, obviously, you know, um, they were uh, breaking. Uh, was it breaking the waves? And yes, um, Dogville yeah. were both featured in the story of films. So I knew that I would get around to watching them eventually because they're on the one thousand and one films to see before you die list. But 
I feel like only kind of watching um, his filmography more extensively and seeing a couple of his um, Danish films as well helped me to really kind of understand what what he was about because he's very much the auteur's auteur, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that in a lot of ways. So Von Trier's made a lot of films and I don't want to spend too long kind of going through his back catalogue because it is extensive. I've seen all his films because of course I have. <laughs> I've seen that one time or another, I didn't rewatch all of them for this show, but I did watch most of them. Um, so his first few films that he made in Denmark are part of what's called the Europe trilogy. And this is uh, element of crime epidemic and Europa. Now these are, if you've only ever seen kind of his later films, very, very different from those. So he didn't start sort of making his films using his sort of traditional kind of handheld camera work until sort of breaking the waves. Um, all his films kind of before that were kind of a lot more kind of formal in style. They were a lot more kind of, I guess, standard kind of lots of dolly shots, lots of stationary shots. And they're all very kind of surreal in one way or another. So Element of Crime is sort of like a detective sort of neo-noir drama, but it's done in a very kind of surrealist sort of Eastern European style, I guess I can kind of describe it as. Uh, and that was a film that, was interesting and I wouldn't mind watching it again. Not my favorite film that he's made, but still kind of worth watching. Epidemic is a weird film. Very, very weird. It's probably his most weird film consciously is uh, kind of a horror film and a sort of meta documentary kind of interspliced together it is about Lars von Trier and his writer at the period, basically trying to make a film. And so half the film is basically them kind of, you know, having trouble kind of writing a film. It's almost like uh, adaptation mm. or being John Malkovich kind of in that way. Very matter. And then the rest of it is kind of the, the film that they're trying to make. And it's very kind of Tarkovsky influenced, as is a lot of uh, Mr. Von Trier's work, as we're going to go into kind of in the show. But this one is, I think, very obviously tarkovsky inspired there's certain kind of images or scenes in the film that are blatant kind of copies of other tarkovsky films and then there's europa which is kind of like a neo-noir kind of very stylish film most of it is in black and white but there are parts in color and because it's set in like world war ii the color sections are clearly meant to show like this is the good life that you are going for whereas the black and white is sort of the boring kind of horrible sort of present day uh, and of the three, I would say probably Europa is kind of the best of those if you hadn't seen any of them. But like I mentioned, they are very different from like his more well-known films. So just bear that in mind. He also made a television film for Danish TV called Medea, mm -hmm. which is based on a script written by Carl Theodore Dreyer, among others, which is based on a Greek tragedy of Medea from Euripides. Which stars to dryer. Mm, which stars Udo Kier, as does in fact most of his films. Uh, oh. Antichrist is actually one of his only films that doesn't star Udo Kier in some way. I'm shocked. He he could have been the fox. Except of course the fox was voiced by Willem Dafoe. Well, that that is true. A that horrendous is true. So, revelation mm. that I hope we will talk about later. Oh no, no, well, he could have been maybe the crow or the deer essentially no, no he's too he's too handsome you told me not so long ago that 
if you were to make films, you would put <laughs> oh, no. Udo in every single film because no because film he's awesome. is worse for having Udo in it. He's awesome. Like he's um, in, he's in Suspiria, but he's you know dubbed, unfortunately, so it's not quite the he's same. He's in Suspiria. Yeah, he's in the original Suspiria. Do you not remember this? Who is he? In he it? is. He's the guy who tells Jessica Harper's character about sort of witches about two thirds of the way into the film. Right, that completely sort of like incongruous bit in broad daylight. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's Udo. Is that a young Udo? That's a young Udo. Yes, that's sort of around sort of Flesh for Frankenstein era Udo. Mm, I have to say, he gets better with age, like fine vintage. Oh wow. Okay, so Udo, you in there, mate? If you're listening to this. Um, so, and that, uh, film, so going back to Medea quickly, it's very kind of, although it's, he's, Von Trier said that he made it kind of in the style of, of Dreyer, it's again, very kind of Tarkovsky-esque. So it's a kind of film that Tarkovsky would make if he was still alive and he made Medea. And then after that, because he kind of wanted to have more control over his films, he started his own production company called Zentropa. And to kind of get money to make his other films, he did a TV miniseries called The Kingdom, which is really good. It's, uh, might be possibly the best thing that he's ever done. I have not seen it for a very, very long time, but I do in fact own it on DVD. Uh, so there's two series of it. It's quite weird and quite scary in places from what I remember. So I will need to watch it again at some point because, uh, yeah, I do recommend it. And there was a second series of that in 1997 and third series is actually being filmed at the moment. So that's what Von True is working on at present. Okay, so he's well enough to be working on a film right now. Yes. Yeah. He, well, it's not a film, it's a TV series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, he's working on something at the moment. Um, but the first film that he made that actually brought him some kind of international attention was Breaking the Waves, which came out in 1996. And it stars Emily Watson as Bess. And it's set in Scotland, in a very sort of small kind of village in Scotland. Really great film, really great central performance. You've also got Stellan Skarsgård in there, who appears in a lot of Von Trier's films. And this was the start of what's called the Golden Heart Trilogy. And uh, we watched this together. So, Miro, I've been talking for quite a while. What did you think about Breaking the Waves? What are your thoughts on that? Um, it was a film that to me, really had a sense of being a novel unfolding on the screen. Um, I think Von Trier's work is very novelistic in many ways. He kind of very deliberately gives us intertitles to indicate where there's a prologue, chapters, and epilogue. Yeah, so he that's one of the uh, things I forgot to mention. So it's kind of from this point that he starts very consciously kind of putting his films in chapters. And most of the films from this point, he does that. Apparently, according to the director's commentary for Antichrist, he got the idea to do that from Barry Lyndon. How interesting. Well, the thing about Breaking the Waves is how consistent um, the visuals are. Um, there's kind of a real kind of ugly chic thing going <laughs> where... None of the, uh, I mean, there's a lot of nature. There's a lot of kind of elemental um, imagery, which is something that, you know, is a huge thing in Antichrist, you know, um, shots of nature, shots of, 
know, trees, I mean, acorns. We're going to mention acorns, I think, <laughs> as many times as they appear in, uh, in, in Antichrist. Um, you know, animals, the sky, you know, the shifting weather, hail at one point, and breaking the waves. And as the title suggests, you know, the, the waves or, you know, the sea, um, both literally and metaphorically features heavily um, in, in the film. But none of it is, um, this is not kind of idyllic scenery. It's, um, it's sort of representative of the inner turmoil of the central characters a lot of the time. And, um, and I'd say actually Emily Watson is, is an attractive young woman. Um, certainly, you know, she had appeared in films like, um, Young Adam, a film I really love where she appeared alongside Ewan McGregor and Tilda Swinton. I mean, she looks, um, I mean, really attractive in that film. Um, <laughs> but for this film, the way she's presented, it's almost kind of, you know, plain dowdy. It seems kind of like a very deliberate stylization. You know, everyone is a character. Everything is kind of part of the larger, uh, the tapestry of von Trier. Nothing is, um, nothing uh, stands out as much as maybe the inner radiance, the inner light, um, you know, the so-called golden heart that kind of shines through the mud. Yeah, and the reason that these films are, well, the next two films he made are part of the Golden Heart trilogies. The main characters are women and they are, let's say that they have good intentions, but the world around them is cruel, I guess, or they it fails them in some way. Would you say that that's fair? Um, yeah, I think it's about a nobility of heart and spirit um, in um, adverse, you know, through adversity. A kind of martyrdom, even. You know, yeah. There's a sense of martyrdom. Definitely. In, in, in all three characters. Yeah, I mean, especially in uh, Breaking the Waves and Dancer in the Dark, though. Yes. For kind of obvious reasons. For obvious reasons, because the, the, the female uh, protagonists um, have a mental and a physical disability, respectively. Yeah. Handicap. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And as well, there's the kind of famous or infamous, depending on who you talk to, ending of Breaking the Waves, which involves uh, the bells ringing kind of in the sky. And people thought it was either a great ending or they thought, well, this is too literal. Like, you don't need to do this. I, I thought it was incredibly effective. And I think that's what elevated the whole film. You know, something which could have been a kind of, uh, you know, social drama about a remote fishing village in Scotland and all we don't like outsiders became really a work of transcendence. I mean, to me, it's sort of Dostoevskian in its scope. Mm. Um, One film that's certainly not Dostoevskian is uh, the next film that he made, which is The Idiots. So Von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg, among others, started the Dogma 95 movement, which I'm not going to go into in great detail now because it's about, essentially, it's a cinematic vow of chastity, mostly to remove artifice, shall we say, from, from films. So, for example, uh, no artificial lights, no non-diegetic sound, and things of that nature. Uh, Von Trier and Vinterberg are the two most kind of famous directors who took part in this and made films as part of the movement. Harmony Corinne... Mm. Uh, also made a film as part of this movement called Julian Donkey Boy as well, which I've seen and is a, a very weird film. Uh, but The Idiots, 
which uh, was, let's say, it's Von Trier's next film, is uh, also part of the movement and is kind of like a black comedy, I guess is the best way to describe it. And it's about people who are pretending to be disabled, I guess, or is that too simple a way to kind of describe it? Uh, no, I mean, they are self-styled spazzers, to quote the film. <laughs> Yes, that's the film's term for it. Absolutely. To spaz is is the word, um, it's the verb that they use to describe um, what, what they're doing. Um, I'm happy to say that um, Charlotte Gainsborough actually really loved The Idiots, and that was one of the Fontria films that she was familiar with before um, before she met him and was cast for Antichrist. Um, it's one that I really enjoyed, certainly. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, it's very strange. It's also quite infamous for, well, an orgy scene that takes place about two-thirds of the way into the film. Very Scandinavian, seems... very kind of frank, yeah. unsimulated sex scene among friends. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. I can't say it was As even a standout moment, to be honest. Like, it's also like part and parcel of this kind of pseudo-documentary kind of uh, dynamic, improvised um, style of the whole film. Another quite interesting thing, I think, um, and I think you'll agree, is that um, for most of his early films, uh, Von Trier operated the camera himself. So there's a lot of like handheld um, camera work, which is in fact Von Trier roaming the set. Yeah, and there's different reasons for that. So what I would say about Von Trier, so from Breaking the Waves onwards, he does have this kind of documentary, kind of handheld style camera work and even the editing as well. So in his films, for example, he'll cut at random points during scenes. Uh, these are like time cuts where someone will be talking and then it will just cut randomly at sort of an kind of unnatural point but it does sort of work really well now why it works better in von trier's films as opposed to pretty much every other film that i've seen try and do this kind of handheld style is in von trier's films he kind of deliberately does it to give his actors kind of room to move around the scene so antichrist is a good example of this so in interviews with both charlotte gainsbourg and willem dafoe they said that Essentially, they didn't really plan out kind of where the characters were going to move in scenes. So they knew their dialogue, but they didn't know exactly what the characters were going to do. So that's why having a cameraman sort of on hand to kind of move around kind of helps. It also gives the films a more intimate feel. So because they're kind of these character dramas, etc. Whereas if you've got a guy and he's just moving the camera a bit, he's sort of stood mostly in one place. It's not really the same. It gives it a fly on the wall kind of documentary feel, I would say. Definitely, and it's um, it, it's very much a stylistic signature von Trier, because even in his later films, which are probably far more kind of technically advanced um, with regards to the way the shots are composed, the different lenses that are being used, the editing, you still, um, as you said, you still have the, these little elements of handheld, um, um, sort of intimate documentary like camera work yeah absolutely and then his next film after the idiots is dancer in the dark aka so breaking worst the waves. state movie ever 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 <laughs> well uh, yeah so breaking the waves is probably not a good date movie the no. idiots maybe isn't a good date movie dancer in the dark is definitely not a good date movie 
I cried so I say, hard. I cried so hard. Yeah. I like my eyes, like we'll watch this quite quite late. Um, and then like the next morning, my eyes were just swollen. Like I don't think I'd looked like that maybe since I was like a teenager and cried myself to sleep. Honestly, it was it was something. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's good to feel things sometimes. No, that, that's good. I, w- I wish I knew what that was like. In fairness, <laughs> I used to know, but I don't anymore. Um, so, Dancing in the Dark is Lars von Trier doing a musical, and it's a musical in the sort of literal, old-fashioned sense of the word. From uh, we're talking like Vicente Minnelli or Stanley Donan, who made Singing in the Rain, or uh, someone like uh, Jacques Demy, who made Umbrellas of Cherbourg, all that kind of stuff. And he cast Bjork in the central role. Uh, him and Bjork do not get on very well, it's fair to say. I think that's putting it quite mildly for various reasons, some of which I do understand from her perspective why she uh, probably doesn't like Lars von Trier very much. But Putting that to aside for one minute, it is a absolutely amazing film. Didn't she famously say that his films don't have a soul, which is why he needs to recruit a powerful central female character in order to imbue those films with a soul? Well, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, that's her interpretation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I can see why she would say that. She's not necessarily right or wrong. That's just, you know, one person's opinion, shall we say. Sure. I mean, she did refer to a Danish director during the whole, like, Me Too. Yeah. Um, I mean, they didn't get on anyway. Apparently, during filming of Dancer in the Dark, it was quite an ordeal for one reason or another. As I always say, look, you often find... Mark Kermode says this all the time, second time I've brought up Mark Kermode on this episode. You'll find people, when they have a great time making a film, the film tends to be bad. Whereas a lot of films where people have an awful time making them, the films tend to be sort of quite good. Now, Mm. I'm sure that's uh, slightly generalised, but... Yeah, you you often find that, like, you know, especially with a film like this, where it was made under, let's say, not the best circumstances possible, they made a great film. And when I talk about films not really affecting me when you've got sort of people being cut up or people being killed kind of at the end, where it's like, we well, didn't give me a reason to care about them in the first place. So sorry, sorry oh. that I don't care that they've died now. That's certainly not the case with Dancer in the Dark at all. <laughs> Let's put it that way. That's very true. There's a reason it comes very high up on all these sort of most depressing movies of all time lists. Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, the, the, the realities of, um, of the death penalty, um, in countries like the US are, are still, um, you know, they are horrific. And, and I think this is an example of a film where the documentary style really does make you feel like you oh, yeah. are watching Absolutely. a documentary about, you know, and, and in a way, like you are seeing something that is not unlike, what happens on a like a weekly monthly basis nationwide also it goes without saying obviously bjork's got an absolutely wonderful singing voice 
So, and it's very unique as well. Mm. Uh, you can tell it's her straight away. And uh, the musical scenes, although it's weird watching these sort of choreographed musical scenes done in this sort of documentary kind of film style, like this kind of stylish, but without being stylized as well. It's sort of very, very kind of interesting kind of combination, if you say. Yeah. yeah so that was cool. There's, um, I mean, maybe there are elements of, I mean, it's a documentary style, but the overall effect is maybe hyper real because you're constantly like, you're aware that this is Bjork. As you said, you know, she's very distinctive, both her voice and the way she looks. And this would have been when she was really at the height of her popularity globally. So, you know, you didn't at any point forget that it was, you know, Bjork, but somehow she completely becomes this character. She completely sort of, uh, she takes it to, to, to new heights. Something which did not happen to me when I watched A Star is Born starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. I was not transported. And I'm a fan of Lady Gaga, so I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, I can't imagine why. After Dancer in the Dark, uh, Von Trier made Dogville, which is a very kind of interesting film in many ways. Uh, he made it with many kind of great actors. I think this has one of the best casts of all time in terms of like acting talent from all around Europe and the world. Uh, starring Nicole Kidman in the lead role, again, someone who famously <laughs> did not get on very well with Lars von Trier. And uh, this is, I don't know if this is my favourite von Trier film, but it's definitely up there. It's done in a very kind of different style. So I'm sure that, well, I haven't read it up on as to kind of the behind the scenes for Dogville in terms of why Von Trier chose to make the film in the way he did. But essentially, for those people who haven't seen Dogville, it's essentially a period film where the set is just a soundstage and there are no like actual buildings and stuff on the soundstage. It's literally a soundstage with chalk outlines on the floor and things like that, which does have an interesting effect because there are scenes where you can see what's going on as an audience, but the characters, in theory, though they should be able to see as well, can't because they are pretending to be in their houses, you for can example. see through walls, yeah. As if, yeah. Uh, it's very the theatrical. Again, very sort of like hyper real it's as if you are watching the filming of a play but everything is completely you know immersive yeah it is like a play like mm. there have been films that have been criticized for being too much like a play because they take place in sort of one location and things like that but that doesn't seem to be an issue with this film compared to perhaps like Mandalay, which is a sequel to Dogville that came out after this. Um, did you enjoy Dogville? I can't remember if we talked about it at uh, the time or not. We uh, we did. I did enjoy it, um, and I think um, you know it's one of those films that um, you know, it's deservedly become part of the canon. I think it's essential viewing. I think it's very enjoyable and challenging at the same time. And again, uh, divided into chapters, the titles of the chapters carry, um, in, in many ways, the, uh, in many ways, the titles of the chapters, they drive the narrative. Yeah. 
it's the same in Dancer in the Dark as well, because mm. the titles of the chapters tell you kind of what's going to happen yeah. as well mm-hmm. going forward. Also, Dogville has great narration by John Hurt. Like, it uses his epic. amazing voice Absolutely kind of to, to great effect, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I thought for me, yeah, absolutely. The cast is, is incredible. Nicole Kidman. I mean, I think this probably has to be my, my favorite performance of hers that I've seen. Oh yeah, definitely. And, uh, this is meant to form part of what's called the America trilogy of which Mandalay is the second film in that trilogy, but there is currently no third film. So it's unclear why Von Trier didn't do it immediately afterwards. I don't know if it's because of his depression or because he just, I don't know, maybe it's hard to get financing for a film like Dogville Mandalay because they're so different. Uh, Mandalay is a kind of direct sequel in a lot of ways I know it's sort of isn't it isn't like a lot of the characters are played by different actors well some are and some aren't it's quite weird like the main character's dad in Dogville is played by James Caan and in Mandalay it's played by Willem Dafoe Mm, yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um, I didn't feel Mandalay as much as Dogville no no, it was a bit of a b-side wasn't it yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree with that. And then for the rest of the 2000s, he made some very different films, I would say. So he made a documentary called The Five Obstructions in 2003, uh, where his mentor is a director called Jürgen Leth. Basically, he made a film in 1967 called The Perfect Human, which is like a short film. And Von Trier in a very Von Trier kind of way, basically challenged him to make it five different times, but under different kind of sets of rules. Um, You know, I've seen it, I saw it a while ago. It's quite interesting, but I mean, it's not like an essential Von Trier film or anything like that. It's a curiosity, as is The Boss of It All, which came out in 2006, which is, again, a kind of a black comedy, sort of in the same sort of style as The Idiot's. In many ways, it's very kind of, yeah, very Danish. It's very Scandi humour, I think, was the term that you used. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. It was all right. It's not something that I would recommend. Um, But one of the uh, things that came out of the boss of it all, and I can't remember the exact term he used, but for the film, apparently, and this could be total bullshit because Von Trier has this reputation for just making shit up for shits and giggles. At least this is calling to Mark Commode anyway. I don't know if this is true or not. He's not a fan of Von Trier, if I remember correctly. No, no, he really isn't. Um, Von Trier created this camera, which basically picks the shots for you. So it's not like a manually operated camera. It's kind of like a steady cam, but it's like automated. So it moves based on kind of its own whim or something like that. I don't know. It all sounds very silly <laughs> and very kind of like geeky, I guess. If you if you care about that sort of thing, then fair enough. I would advise you to kind of look up kind of the boss of it all and kind of how it was made and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the film is okay, not essential. And then in 2009, he made Antichrist, which we're going to go to in great detail. Anno uh, Horribilis, 2009. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. 
Uh, we, now, Antichrist is the first part of what is called the Depression Trilogy, because Von Trier started suffering from depression in sort of the late 2000s, and he thought that he couldn't work anymore, and from there came Antichrist. Uh, and then after that came Melancholia. Now, Miro, we uh, watched Melancholia very, very recently, so something that you'd wanted to watch for a long time. What did you think of it? I absolutely loved it. It's seamless. Um, it really takes the um, so-called monumental scenes to the next level, which are these um, surrealistic, almost set pieces, like super slow-mo, very sort of heavily digitally enhanced sort of tableaus. And I am a fan of Kirsten Dunst. Um, I'm, she was in several films that really influenced me growing up, like The Virgin Suicides. It's a great film. Um, and, yeah, Sophia Coppola. Uh, Coppola um, also Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, Brilliant film. Great, great film. And so mm. like Kirsten Dunst, um, I think, is, was in quite a fortunate position to have been in several kind of very moody, acclaimed films where she was playing this sort of, I mean, obviously Marie Antoinette. Um, I mean, that's that's a show-stopping performance, you know, another Sofia Coppola film. Um, so I think even though she sort of is this um, angelic, fragile, you know, American sweetheart kind of um, character, um, she, she has been in these, um, you know, quite complex um in many ways dark uh films so um the choice the casting choice was uh, an intelligent one and one that was in conversation with like other great films that she had been in um a huge fan of charlotte gainsbourg so it was really great like for me the fact that she tied the depression trilogy together um was was something um something I really enjoyed, something that spoke to me. I think the, the standout thing about Melancholia to me was that um, it was taking on a literally a monumental, a giant theme, namely the arrival of a black planet called Melancholia out of outer space that's on a collision course with Earth. And it's sort of, it's sort of like 2001 in scope, you know, just the sheer yeah. cosmic operatic kind of Especially drama of it. Oh, it's just phenomenal. I would watch that film again and again and again. I feel like I've only just scratched the surface. And I feel like it's one of those films that doesn't just pretend to be deep, you know, but it's just making... It's not smoke and mirrors. There's really something to it. There's really something to it. So you go, good date movie. Great date movie. <laughs> that That is an absolutely fantastic date movie, actually. And yeah, if so all goes well, you will be comforting her at the end, pressing her to your bosom going, it's okay. We're safe now. There you Champagne. go. So that's a good one. That's a good one to choose. Melancholia, I should also say, is probably Von Trier's most kind of renowned kind of film that he's made sort of in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, or maybe even 20 years. 
well actually no well since dogville anyway um it's the one that's had like sort of the most critical praise it turns up on a lot of kind of best of lists and things like that so yeah if you yeah definitely definitely Mm. it's kind of different from well it's very different from all the other films that he made in the same period like nymphomaniac which uh, came out in 2013 and well i also saw at the cinema i saw parts one and two back to back but we had a bit of an interesting situation so when we were re-watching Nymphomaniac, <laughs> we, we had both clearly seen the theatrical version i think we had seen cinema. different theatrical versions at the cinema i'm pretty sure the one i saw at the phoenix picture house was somehow more explicit than the one that you saw was it at the criterion or well i saw it at the uh, curzon at the curzon sorry sorry but unbeknownst to me the one that I found for both parts was the director's cut. Mm-hmm. So the first part isn't really that much different between the theatrical cut and the director's cut. And of the two, I kind of always thought that the first part was better. So the first part is when the main character is younger, played by Stacey Martin. And uh, obviously in the uh, second part, it's Charlotte Gainsbourg again. And the first part, as I said, basically the same, but the director's cut of part two is like almost an hour longer. There's so much stuff that they cut out of the director's cut. I mean, some of it, you can definitely understand why. Uh, There's one scene in particular. Of course. It's the worst eight movies ever. There's no limits here. Well, that, I mean, I think that qualifies part two for one of the worst eight movies ever. And it sort of fits this, um, recent um cinematic tradition of showing like abortions (laughs) on the screen in like in real time as in you know the scene lasts as long as it actually takes a woman to have an abortion you know we saw this in enter the void uh with pastilla fuerta um the camera work is fancy as fuck but like it actually takes a long time you know we saw this obviously in um, the tribe i mean that's not a film that we've um talked about on the show i hope that one one day we will but you know that has uh, an abortion scene which i found very difficult to watch um yes quick story when i watched the tribe at the london film festival someone walked out yeah, I mean, right it's, it's me. a walkout moment. It's, they it's a never came moment. back, so that was their tipping point. Well, in Nymphomaniac Part 2, the director's uh, cut, Charlotte Gainsbourg um, performs an abortion on herself. Yes. Um, that was... It's not even someone doing it for her. It's like you said, it's a self-abortion. Yeah, it's a self-abortion. It's unflinching. It's sort of very... I mean... It's like full frontal genital. Um, she does all kinds of stuff to her genitals for Lars von Trier. It's very true, um, but you know <laughs> they are—they are body doubles, aren't they? We don't actually. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's not her. <laughs> which I thought was but, quite quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I sort of when we were watching this, I messaged my sister. I was like. <laughs> You know, we're watching <laughs> we're watching Nymphomaniac and You never guess what I'm watching. Yeah, I'm like I just said like I'm rewatching Nymphomaniac. There, there, there wasn't an abortion scene when when we watched it at the cinema. She's like, oh God, no, what? What? <laughs> so I think maybe if that had been, you know, if that had been playing at the Phoenix Picture House, 
in Oxford's Jericho, uh, maybe it would have affected her a bit more than it did. I mean, in a uh, way, I'm kind of thankful. I thought it was an embarrassing film to watch. I mean, to be honest, like we've had this conversation. I think the most embarrassing, weird cinematic outing I've ever had is is accidentally watching Brokeback Mountain at the Picture House in Bath with a friend's dad. Um, like, <laughs> did I tell you about this? No, no, but it sounds it sounds horrendous. I've got to say, mine, yeah, uh, very quickly is uh, well, I haven't had any really really bad ones, but I did find watching Blue is the Warmest Color. Oh yeah, at the cinema, quite awkward because well you can guess why because of the very drawn out 10 minute long kind of you know lesbian yeah it's it's quite it's a little bit longer than is comfortable definitely yeah and you know the fact that the um the fact that both actors actually then commented that they felt quite uncomfortable you know with with the director's um instructions and just generally that that whole it did feel like that did came come across as is as, as, as quite uncomfortable yeah well no I, I can understand why uh that film is great by the way i don't care what anyone says or blue is uh, the warmest color yeah la vida yeah. d'elle another sort of uh, a whopping long film that came out at roughly the same time right yeah yeah it's almost something in the air clearly in european cinema uh, yeah, um, I, I honestly, I, I wouldn't want Nymphomaniac to, you know, our discussion of Nymphomaniac to just boil down to like the most horrific scenes of Nymphomaniac because I think actually... Wow. Um, in, Clearly in, you haven't seen enough videos about the film on the internet. Well, <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just think, like, for, for my part, you know, I'd probably put it on my top 10 films of all time. I think it's, um, um, it's a very, um, it's a nuanced and convincing uh, portrait of, of female desire. Like, yes, it goes into pathology, but, you know, it does play with the contrast settings. This is not an ordinary woman, but I think on some level, every woman can relate to, to what is, is being presented on, on the screen. And, um, and there are certainly some scenes which I think are just so very ambitious you know, both in form and content. And Stellan Skarsgård, my God, you know, I think like that that has to be one of his most twisted performances. Yeah, especially when he's talking about fishing. Oh, yeah, fly fishing. <laughs> so Nymphomaniac was obviously, you know, so fuck, the director's cut is like nearly five, five and, and a half, half hours, hours long. Yeah. It's very long. It's very long. His... Last film that he's made came out in 2018 is The House That Jack Built, which is fairly notorious for, I can see why, but at the same time, it's like one of these films where it's like, it's more notorious than I think it really deserves. Not that the material in it is like easy to watch, but I think kind of stuff like this is sort of palatable for most people. But anyway, I still think it's a really good film. So it stars Matt Dillon as basically a serial killer. And in the same way that in Infomaniac, you've got uh, Southern Skarsgård talking about fly fishing. In this, you've got Bruno Gontz in one of his last film roles before he passed away. And it's in a very kind of similar role, although it's, I haven't seen the film for a couple of years, so my memory may be wrong on this, but it's unclear whether he plays like an actual person or not, or just someone who Matt Dillon kind of has conversations with. And they have conversations about all kinds of random shit in this film. 
Uh, also stars people like Jeremy Davis, who is in Dogville. It's got Uma Thurman in it, who's in Nymphomaniac. And I think it's really good. I do recommend it. It's uh, worth checking out if you're a fan of his more recent films. Because what I would say, and this kind of ties into sort of, you know, when we start talking about Antichrist, is that his style definitely changed in sort of the mid-2000s. So where he had this kind of very kind of fly-on-the-wall documentary style in the 90s, which then obviously became Dogma 95, and then it moved into sort of Dogville, which was stylish but in a different way from what most films are when we call them stylish. There's more kind of post-production effects work and things like that on his films. There's more kind of colour grading and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, so, man's had quite a long career. I would say pretty distinguished. He's not made a film that I would describe as bad. There are certainly films that I prefer more than the others. But I would say he's got a very worthwhile back catalogue of films. His oeuvre is uh, definitely worth exploring. Uh, he absolutely does, and um, and he's been acclaimed for it. Um, he's won the Palme d'Or for Dancing in the Dark. He's received numerous awards. He's um, in his in his home country of Denmark. He's very well respected, and in fact, um, I think the critical reception for Antichrist was was some of the best nationwide in Denmark. Um, I mean, the um, Politiken uh, Journal, uh, which is sort of one of the main, uh, you know. Critical um, uh, mag- magazines in in Denmark called it a grotesque masterpiece, which I think kind of pretty much sums up, you know, what what Antichrist is all about. So um, uh, I wonder if, in fact, um, his sort of overpowering Danishness is maybe lost on <laughs> us a little bit. Um, uh, I've only seen the idiots as far as his Danish films are are concerned, but. You certainly do get a sense of that, um, you know, that Lockie-esque sort of trickster humor, irony, sarcasm a lot yeah. more when it's in his sort of native Danish. Um, and um, another thing I think that it's important to remember, like, yes, you know, he is the enfant terrible of European cinema, but um, he is well known to the, um, the, the the establishment, you know, the, the critical, the cultural establishment. I mean, um, we watched some of the extras on the Antichrist DVD and um, there's like a video montage of the premiere day of Antichrist at Cannes. And, you know, like the, 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 the president general of the Cannes Film Festival sort of actually like personally comes to meet him, you know, <laughs> as he like, comes to the city of yeah. Cannes, you know, as he arrives, it's very sort of, I don't want to say triumph of the will, but you know what I mean. It's, uh, <laughs> it's sort of. Don't want to say it. No. But he still did anyway. No, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but that's another thing, you know, a lot of the like controversy surrounding uh, Von Trier comes from some of the stuff that he's um, said in jest at press conferences uh, to an audience of like dour-faced critics that are then outraged. And then, you know, um, and it's a bit of a sort of, um, it's a bit of a kind of Chinese whisper situation. Like for instance, um, Von Trier, I mean, apart from the fact that he does suffer from, from clinical depression that has had him 
you know, committed to, um, to, to hospital at certain times uh, in his life and completely unable to work. And this is something, you know, mental health issues is something that he uh, had struggled with from like age four. Um, he's actually had quite, you know, quite, quite an interesting life. Um, he, uh, the man that he believed to be his father for most of his life, was revealed by his mother on her deathbed not to have actually been his biological father. So he was brought up by um, by a Jewish man, and he knew, like, he always thought himself to be half Jewish. And then his mother revealed to him um, before, just before she died, that his father was in fact a German, um, who I believe was was that she had an affair with him and he was married at the time and this was you know not something that was like revealed. Um, so I think um, this this was this was around the time that Melancholia was released and in a press conference he sort of referred to this saying, "Oh, you know, I guess I'm a Nazi now," and that was that was not well received. Well, that wasn't exactly what he said, but yeah, for for the sake of kind of not kind of laboring the point too much, yes, he he essentially said something along those lines. Yeah, and he meant it clearly in jest. Yeah, but I don't so, I don't think it was taken in yeah. jest. But there was, you know, there was some, We've all been there. We've I've all- <laughs> been there before certainly. I certainly think some of the things that he has said in jest over the years like has been misconstrued and maybe that spark of like scandinavian humor like lost in translation um but also i think that he is a director that is as much lauded and embraced by the by the establishment as he is you know vilified and um and called out yeah yeah i think that happens with like gaspar noe and people like that as well i think that happens with all these sort of directors because one of the things that I wasn't sure if I was going to mention or not on the show is Von Trier has been sort of associated with New French Extremity, mm-hmm. but in a slightly different way. So there's a movement, it's not like one of these official movements, it's sort of unofficial, but it's called like the New Extremity, of which all the kind of French directors sort of lumped into and Michael Haneke and himself and Lucas Moudisson have all been sort of, yeah, associated with for making these uh, extreme films. Although Antichrist is the only film of his that has like extreme violence in it. Mm. Um, Von Trier's films are interesting in that they're extreme because of what happens to the characters, sort of just how they're treated by other people is sort of quite horrible (laughs) in a lot of ways. He clearly doesn't think very much of uh, human beings, is all I'll say. I think Nymphomaniac, it would be fair to say, also rates pretty much alongside Antichrist. That does as well, but not quite in the same way. Well, we'll we'll talk about it kind of you know when we get to it mm. i guess so it's uh, at this time makes probably the most sense to start talking about antichrist because that's why you're here after all and we've got to get to it at some point and now is as good a time as any so like i mentioned at the start of the show antichrist came out in 2009 and is a very interesting film it's a film that i like i like certain aspects of it more than others but we'll go into that kind of you know when we talk about the film in more detail the backstory to the film is we mentioned 
you know, Von Trier, he was suffering from depression. He found it hard to write and he was working on the film for a, a while and Willem Dafoe just randomly kind of messaged him one day, or maybe his agent did, and said, hi, Lars, are you making anything at the moment? And Lars was like, well, I've got this. I uh, don't think you'll be interested in it, but hey, you asked, so here's a script. And Willem Dafoe said, yeah, I'd actually really like to be in this. And so, hence, he ended up in the film. Uh, the actress role is actually kind of interesting because... According to an interview that Von Trier did with Rotten Tomatoes, originally he wanted Ava Green to be the female lead in Antichrist, which would have made the film a bit different. She certainly was quite famous at the time for being Casino Royale, so Vesper. maybe the film would have... Yeah, Vesperland, yes, exactly. And she well, her being in it would have certainly kind of maybe added more commercial appeal to the film based on kind of, you know, what she'd done at that time. But she, well, it's she wanted to really be in it, but her people didn't want her to be in the film. So instead, the uh, lead female role in the film went to uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg is obviously the daughter of Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbourg, the famous French singer. She... I had never actually heard of her at the point where she was in Antichrist. Like she had been in films, like she was in 21 Grams in a supporting role. She was in The Science of Sleep. I think that was her most well-known kind of lead role, and that was for Michelle Gondry. She was Jane Eyre in Zeffirelli's adaptation of the Charlotte Bronte novel, which is how I saw her first when I was right. in. Right. See, I've never seen that. Mm. So, um, so yeah. So she had some kind of fame shall we say but this was kind of the first that i had heard of her and she is obviously really really good in antichrist and she won best actress at the Cannes film festival for being in antichrist it's a very kind of raw performance i would say but in a good way i absolutely agree uh, charlotte gainsbourg is one of my favorite things about this film and the depression trilogy, quote unquote, at large. Um, I think she uh, imbues um, each of the three films with a sophistication, uh, with a with soul. You know, to quote Bjork, um, paraphrase Bjork. <laughs> um, and she's just she's just amazing. There's this incredible quality to her voice. She speaks at once quite quite softly and yet very um there's a great power to her voice and there's something almost you know elemental about her voice it's very much like wind rushing through reeds there's something you know the very very kind of pleasant but also like slightly insidious about it and um she does have i mean you know she is the child of arguably the most famous couple of the 60s, as you said, Jane Birkin <laughs> and, 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 and Serge Gainsbourg. Um, and she is, I mean, she's strikingly beautiful, but in this sort of, you know, understated sort of French way, um, of course, like, well, her native language is French, but she's equally fluent in English um, and sort of very well spoken. And the outfits that she wears in Antichrist, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure like 
who uh, was in charge of costume in Antichrist, but she looks like, you know, like she's a cat, like she's wearing these sort of designer outfits. Like if you pause the film at any one point, you know, she's just like rocking all these like cozy woolens and folksy linens. And at one point, like there's this amazing yellow, like anorak that she wears and, you know, just, just beautiful, hardly wearing any makeup at all. I mean, a lot of the time she's crying or she's, um, attacking Willem, having angry sex, having anxiety attacks, you know, hyperventilating at one point she banging performs, her head against a toilet at one point she performs a clitorectomy and you know amid all As that she's just she's just aloft you know on this on this cloud of je ne sais quoi just being her perfect stylish self what i like about her is she's able to kind of portray characters who are let's just say, not exactly the nicest people in the world, but she gives them sort of depth. Mm -hmm. So her character in Melancholia, for example, is a bit of a bitch, to put it mildly. I I didn't think Uh, so. Maybe it's because I'm an older sister too. Okay. Well, to me, she didn't come across as sort of understanding in a lot of ways. She was very bossy. I I don't really agree with that. I think she's okay. she's very she's very um she's very caring and tolerant of of her her sister's um you know mental health issues even when her dick of a husband um Keith Sutherland Keith Keith Sutherland yeah uh even when I mean he's like the archetypal capitalist pig in this isn't he you know he's like <laughs> the patriarch <laughs> the fool um yeah, even when he when he's been like really mean and it's putting a pressure like on their relationship, she's like, no, she's my sister and I will stand by her, which is, you know, something, a sentiment that I can get behind 200%. Fuck off, Kiefer. <laughs> fuck off, Kiefer. And possibly fuck off Willem Dafoe as well. Well, you know how I so feel about Willem tell Dafoe. Me, tell me a story. Tell, tell the listeners a story about Willem Dafoe before we talk about this film because we've got to get it out there um i for many years i have um i've had a certain level of intolerance for willem dafoe it's it's really nothing against him personally you know um he seems like a really nice man he seems like a lovely man in fact um sort of seeing him kind of out and about in Cannes promoting the film he seems sort of very affable very likable it's just him as a screen presence. It really, I don't know what it is. Um, like, would it sound too harsh if I said like, he makes my skin crawl? Like he gives me anxiety. Like every film that I've seen him in, and he's been in millions, like literally, like I was looking on Letterboxd, you know, at films that he's been in. He's been in a million films. I'm not exaggerating. That is the literal number. He's a very hardworking man. He clearly really, you know, sings for his supper. But honestly, there's just something about his face. There's this kind of leathery tension to him and his voice is sort of a bit. Um, I'm really looking forward to to watching Shadow of the Vampire with you, which um, uh, where, where he, I believe, um, plays Max Schreck on the set yes. of... Um, Nosferatu, Nosferatu, a symphony of terror. 
the 1922 German Expressionist horror masterpiece. Um, that's exactly the sort of role that he should be cast for. You know, it's like slightly ogreish, slightly kind of ghoulish, but like not in a sexy way, not in a sexy way, in a kind of medieval woodcut way. You know, um, I, I'm not a fan. I do not think he's a handsome man. We have seen him in Antichrist. We have all also seen him in The Last Passion of Christ. You know, I, I have gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, I have gone from Willem Dafoe as Jesus Christ in Martin Scorsese's 1988 film, which rips off the Stargate sequence from 2001, A Space Odyssey at the end, to pull it all together. I mean, come on, let's face it. Um, all the way to, to Antichrist and... It's just, I, you know, the man, he's very competent. He's doing his thing, but he gives me anxiety, which is actually great for the purpose of Antichrist because I feel like half of the dramatic tension in this film comes from just Willem Dafoe being on the screen, you know, um, having sex in slow motion, having acorns fall on him in slow motion, being tortured either in slow motion or fast motion. Like I feel to actually towards the end that his character and just, you know, his general presence, like actually like most of that violence is deserved. Right. We were talking, we were talking um, after having seen this about, um, about professional ethics. Should he as a practicing psychotherapist be taking on his wife as a patient after the death of their child, please discuss. Yeah. So I was going to get onto that. So that actually <laughs> transitions quite nicely into mm. the uh, synopsis of the film. For those of you who have, or indeed have not seen Antichrist. Now the overall story is actually really, really, really easy to describe <sighs> in few words. Essentially you've got a couple, they are not named in the film in the credits. They're just known as he and she, uh, at the start of the film, they are having sex and their child dies by falling out of a window to the ground below, instantly dying. She does not take it very well. She is suffering from a lot of grief as a result of their child's death. He is a psychotherapist of some degree. At the very start of the film, she's in hospital for an unknown period of time. For atypical grief. Yeah. For atypical grief, that's right. And essentially, she's taking all these pills for her grief. He, being a therapist, thinks that he knows better and decides, you know what? I'm going to help you through this. I know better than these doctors, these, these fucking doctors. How dare they, you know, and their scientific opinions and all this kind of stuff. So he decides, you know what? I'm going to just do it myself. So he essentially tries to counsel her, which is a problem for several reasons and just gets worse and worse and worse as the film goes on. So essentially he tries to counsel her at their home, I'm assuming it's meant to be. And turns out that through the course of the narrative, we find out that they have a cabin, which they call Eden, which is in the forest somewhere. Apparently this film is set in the Pacific Northwest of America. <laughs> But I don't think that's clear. That's what it said on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't look at me. But that's another very Fontrier thing. Like all of his films are like set somewhere, you know, America, quote unquote, 
England, quote unquote, like nymphomaniac yeah. is supposed to be in England, but all of it just looks like this like fairy tale nowhere land with like romantic with a capital R, you know, mid-European overtones. Yeah. That's the thing that they did in Italian films back in the day as well. They would say oh, they films didn't give a York, fuck. They, they, they wouldn't give, give a, a fuck. fuck. Exactly. No. Exactly. So anyway, so he decides to take her to Eden to take part in immersion therapy and it's fair to say that it does not work out to uh his advantage no this is a cautionary tale about ethics in the um, psychotherapy world yes so there are issues with the story really to begin with in terms of if this person was a real sort of therapist and had been through kind of a, a long arduous road to getting like a degree in psychotherapy and all this kind of stuff you would be told do not kind of give treatment to members of your family because immediately kind of you're breaching some kind of ethics there there's all kinds of issues there and she doesn't get better and then yeah it just like i said gets worse and worse from there i mean there's a horrible scene when he's you know when she's sort of forcing him to have kind of angry sex with her to sort of make her forget, you know, this, this grief where he goes, you should never screw your therapist, no matter how much he may like it. And it's like, oh, stop it, please make it stop. <laughs> so, you know, the connotations yeah. are not lost on him. Having said that, it could be suggested that counseling her through her grief is his way of getting over his grief of, of also losing his child. Yes, as well. Yeah, because he doesn't seem that fussed. Like, oh. I'm sure he, he's not exactly peaches and cream that his child died, but he, if he's, if anything, kind of, you know, keeping all this kind of hidden under the surface, he's trying to be a very kind of stoic kind of... He's been the strong uh, man and she's the yeah. silly woman. He's trying to... And Von Trier on the director's commentary for Antichrist, I think he even basically said this, is that mm. he's trying to kind of overanalyze stuff. I think that's kind of how he his character kind of gets through things is through kind of, yeah, just overthinking shit, yeah, essentially. Yeah, he's sort of, you know, everything that's wrong with rationalism. Um, I think a quote that's very telling of the character that he or Willem Dafoe plays is this, you don't have to understand me, just trust me. That's sort of his main <laughs> message, you know, like don't, don't use a critical fact. Like, don't try and get your head around this psycho babble that I'm throwing at you. I mean, honestly, his, I mean, I read, um, I, I read um, that Lars von Trier brought in elements of his own um, experience of therapy when he was writing, um, when he was writing Antichrist. And, and he's sort of, he's interested in Jungian psychoanalysis. So a lot of that is working about working with dreams, about working with archetypes, about using sort of almost, um, uh, magical, you know, mythical language to articulate, you know, some of the, some of the issues that, that we struggle with. Um, mm -hmm. I was not convinced by Willem Dafoe's methods in this film. It seems like, Towards, you know, it, like as the film progresses and they're in the cabin, cabin, his only weapon is 
a legal notepad and a pen where he draws this like pyramid and tries to write down the fears that she, oh, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character, faces. And, and I feel like some of the most humorous scenes, because there is like, there is like quite dark, kind of acerbic, um, I'd say like hidden humor in this film. You know, a lot of the like humorous uh, elements come from these sort of therapist, quote unquote, patient, quote unquote, uh, dialogues. And one of them goes something like this. Let's pretend I am nature. I am all the things that you're afraid of. To which Charlotte Gainsbourg's like, okay, Mr. Nature. Like, you know, ridiculous. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is not right, going mate. to lead to a, you know, to a breakthrough. And it's almost like she is supposed to be the weak one, the struggling one. But as this whole therapeutic process unfolds, further and further from civilization, deep in the dark, putrid heart of the forest, it becomes clear that he's incompetent, he's insensitive, hmm. he doesn't know what yeah. the hell he's doing. In many ways, no. you know, he at one point becomes the victim of his own hubris, having dragged out yes. uh, a woman that had actually been institutionalized into the middle of nowhere with himself. Yes, she causes him physical harm. Yeah, I mean, that happens in a lot of Von Trier's films, though, if you notice. So mm. I was going to mention at some point in this review, but fuck it, we might as well talk about it now. So one of the key bones of contention with a lot of people is, oh, this film is misogynistic and Von Trier, he hates women. No. Clearly people haven't watched his films. The men in all his films are basically idiots or they're helpless in one way or another. Like Dogville is the one that kind of came to mind when you were describing kind of Willem Dafoe's character, because essentially like all these people are really horrible to Nicole Kidman's character. And then they all get killed right at the end of the film mm. or, well, I'm not sure if it actually happened or if it's like a, a vision or a dream that she has or something like that or something no, kind of I think it pretty much happened no I'm pretty sure it did that's kind of the yeah. point right <clears throat> anyway that's their fault <laughs> like if they were nice to her like that would not have happened essentially yeah but then I feel like the counter argument that the film itself makes is ah but they were poor to what extent <laughs> does it excuse their actions no no it, it's fair to say you know um, it's just the way you put it. It was quite, quite to the point. Well, Dogville... It amused me. Um, Dogville is a film about the Depression, the Great Depression in the 1930s mm. and poverty and how it drives people to do certain America. things. It's about America and it's about poverty. Mandalay, conversely, is about America and it's about slavery and race relations. Mm. You know, like in many ways, Dogville is about class relations. Uh, and then, and 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 Mandalay is about um, is about race relations, and we know that the two are kind of part of this diptych, maybe one day trilogy or triptych, um, because the end credits use a photo collage of documentary photos from the time, um, set against um, David Bowie's Young Americans, you know, to really drum mm. the point home. <laughs> it happens in um, Infomaniac as well. Yeah. So anyway, my point is, is that for all the people who kind of take the film literally yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and don't understand that just because a film has something in it doesn't mean that the people who made the film are pro the things that it's showing. Like, if I make a film and it's got a racist character in it, that does not make me a racist for putting a racist character in my film. Yeah, I mean, I think what, I mean, the the counter-argument to that would be why are you giving a platform to racism full stop? There will be people watching that can't tell wrong from right or that don't understand that you're doing this as an illustration, um, etc. You know, it's difficult. Right. It's about censorship. It's about how yeah. much do we trust the audience to, to make up their own mind about what's happening uh, on the screen. My argument to that is that Essentially, you're saying that no characters in any film can ever be really bad. They can be banally bad. I'm not like saying they would that. Be in like, um, yeah, but th- I'm just, I'm not saying you're saying that. No. I'm just saying the counter argument I would make to that is, you know, it's about the film itself. Like the example I use is, okay, Birth of a Nation, like the original Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith Birth of a Nation, that film is definitely racist. Like it has racist things that happen in it. And the message that the film is trying to send is racist. So the two things are kind of linked. But in something like, and this is the example I always use for this, Zero Dark Thirty. I remember when Zero Dark Thirty came out, all these people were up in arms. It's like, this film, it glamorizes torture. It says that, you know what, you can use torture to kind of get information out of people you've got prisoner. And it says that that's okay. Those people clearly didn't watch the film or they weren't paying attention when they were watching it because that is not what happens in the film at all. So anyway, it's uh well, very get true. off my horse for a second. I mean, so. I, I love Zero Dark Thirty. It's it's one of my favorite films, you know, one of the most, I think, powerful um uh, uh cinema experiences that I've had, because I saw it in the cinema when it came out. Um, Catherine Bigelow film. Um just brilliant film, but then again. It's torture and it's waterboarding. And that's something which was in the media so much. It was such a huge controversy, like surrounding like the outfall of like 9-11 and, and, you know, obviously um, the, the consequent wars. I mean, the consequent involvement of U.S. troops on foreign soil, um, arguably to defend U.S. national interests. I mean, it was just so controversial that it would have almost been bad form to ignore a film which then kind of brought it to the, you know, to the big screen. It's sort of like, do critics have the moral responsibility to alert, you know, the audience or to like flag up these controversial things that 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 are shown? It's the whole trigger warning thing, I would say. Like some people, like when they talk about the kind of films that I talk about, they have trigger warnings at the start you know they go okay well i'm going to be talking about rape because this film has rape in it or this has sort of sexual abuse or or, okay and some of that you know what i can kind of understand because there are some people who have been through those experiences who you know may get some kind of you know they might have ptsd from those experiences so it might be helpful for them to know you know what going to be talking about this kind of thing it might not be something that you want to listen to but i've never taken it to that extreme because how far do you go with that like i just say look you know what guys going to be talking about disturbing stuff on this show 
you know what you're getting into. If you don't like it, you can press stop. But, you know, I mean, fuck, you should know what you're getting yourself into. It's the same when I've talked about kind of Nazi exploitation on the show. I have to say, like, don't get the wrong idea. I'm talking about these films just as films. I'm not saying that, you know, I support far-right ideologies or anything like that. And I shouldn't have to say that, but unfortunately I do because people you know they just get the wrong idea from stuff you know what i mean so anyway well you're speaking about yeah. some of your most uh, popular episodes there so clearly someone I, somewhere well, has the right idea no maybe maybe or people like films with nazis in what can i say well <laughs> Lars von trier loves the night porter he does it's one of his favorite films isn't it yeah absolutely so and he uh passed Charlotte Rampling in Melancholia. Uh, Melancholia. And he made Charlotte Gainsbourg watch The Night Porter, I believe. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant film. I actually re-watched it in anticipation of this episode. And, um, mm. I mean, it's a work, you know, Liliana Cavani. I actually re-watched Last Tango in Paris as well because it's sort of like – um, from the same um, From the same period, and, in fact, Liliana Cavani – um, uh, and um, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci, they're sort of part of the same generation of Italian filmmakers, and the films yeah. are from from a very similar time period. And and kind of both films are about trauma and sort of unconventional sexual relationships that are, you, I mean, that are a means of processing trauma. Um, and and it, one could argue that Antichrist is is very much about the role that sex plays not just in the in the relationship between two people or the sexes you know it being the Jungian archetypal he she rather than sort of actually like actual fully rounded characters um you could say that also it's about the way that sex which is you know a fairly kind of neutral act especially you know between a you know, to married people becomes something very evil as the two parents go through the process of grieving their loss, the loss of their young child. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about as well as kind of the sexual politics of the film, whether it's misogynistic or not, I wanted to talk about it in terms of it as a horror film, because I think it's very interesting. This mm-hmm. is the only horror film in Lars von Trier's Earth, and it invokes horror in quite a interesting way, you could argue in a few different ways. So the obvious one to me is you've got Cabin in the Woods, the woods are evil in inverted commas. So that obviously brings to mind stuff like the evil dead. So that's both the original and remake. Although there are no deadites in uh, Antichrist. That would have certainly been a bit of a turn up for the books. Um, but, but there that's, are talking like said, animals. There, there are talking animals, which does actually bring up my second kind of comparison. So this could possibly be interpreted as like a folk horror film mm. because it's sort of taking place in the countryside because you've got nature mm-hmm. and you've got sort of animals that are yeah. evil. And yeah. Yeah, that's probably a very overly simplistic way of, of looking at it. Not, and you've got sort of acorns falling on sort of the cabin and all this kind of stuff. Stupid bring- acorns. Yeah, <laughs> damn acorns. Yeah, 
they're talking about oak trees and stuff like that. It does bring to mind Witches. different types of films. So you've got things like The Long Weekend, the Australian horror film, which is basically about man versus nature. You could also sort of, I know this came after Antichrist, but a film like The Witch. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's very The Witch. Yeah. In many ways. Which itself is... is influenced by sort of again folk horror films um but another kind of comparison which again mark kermode noticed and i noticed as well and i want to know your thoughts about mm-hmm. this because you've seen the film mm-hmm. is possession by Andrzej zawowski oh brilliant 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 film are we going to cover it at some point we we are going to cover it at yeah. some point yes yes uh yes. watch this space for that but uh, yeah, it's again, in a sort of elemental terms, it's mm. about a relationship in decline mm. between a couple. They have a child and the woman kind of experiences some kind of sexual psychosis, if you want to call it that. Although obviously in possession, it's very different from Antichrist. But again, I thought it was very, very interesting kind of comparison. Of the two films, I prefer Possession, but yeah, it's. Uh, well, uh, what do you think about that? I think it's 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 very different. Um, in Antichrist, it's a very contained world, and um, in Possession, the city and you know being followed around the city and like different streets and underpasses, they place like such a big role in kind of creating that um, psychological sphere. You know that that I feel. Um, it's impossible for me to imagine possession taking place in the middle of the forest. Yeah, they're very different. Like, yeah. Yeah, possession is very urban. The fact that very it takes urban. place in Berlin is yeah, a, a key very part kind of, of run down, you know, like late seventies, early eighties Berlin. Yeah, not a glamorous yeah. place. Um, no, no. Cabin's not very glamorous either, in fairness, but still, it's very different being in the middle of nature as opposed Sorry, to. Don't you mean yeah. Eden? Or Eden. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. My mistake. It's, it's, um, so I think the film does what, I think one of the strong, uh, one of the film, one of Antichrist's strengths is the fact that although the film has kind of symbolic illusions, you know, he, she, Eden, yada, yada, um, it works on the level of just literally two people. You know, I feel like the characters, even though we don't know very much about them, they really do work. I mean, the performances really deliver them as real people going through something very real. Um, it doesn't just um, it doesn't just feel like a you know a metaphor. Yeah, which is interesting because Lars von Trier doesn't see any kind of allegorical kind of content in this film or any metaphorical content, which, as a person you know, who would know something about this more than myself, let's put it that way. Some people have taken this film to be like a religious allegory in some ways, because it's a man and a woman, the child dies, go to Eden. Yeah, yeah. It's been, um, I think a lot of film critics who have written about this, um, you know, in a scholarly way. It's called Antichrist. (laughs) Well, yeah, no, no, you know, no theological overtones whatsoever, you know, no, just an ordinary story, you know. Um, A lot of critics who, and film scholars who had written about this, they, 
um, picked out this idea of the original myth, you know, that actually this, um, um, this film is a symbolic exploration of what happens to man and woman, you know, after the fall. Um, in this case, the very literal fall of their toddler out of a window to his untimely death. Um, very literal. Very literal, yeah. Um, I was actually really sorry to discover that Charlotte Gainsbourg's sister um, fell out of a window to her death in 2013. Um, wow. Yeah, which is, I don't know, kind of kind of resonate, kind of a bit spooky. Life-imitating art, shall we say. Mm, yeah. Um, it's difficult to see this film as being devoid of that symbolic or even symbolist dimension it's um in many ways like i i mentioned this earlier but i think it's very baroque and what i mean by that is that it's very deliberately constructed using um uh you know drawing on quite kind of universally recognizable themes and, you know, some of the things that um, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character talks about um, are related to a thesis that she was working on in the same cabin, Eden, a year mm-hmm. before they arrived there for a very unsuccessful round of immersion therapy. Um, <laughs> she was working on a thesis on the topic of gynocide Um I think the term that is sort of more um, more in current usage is femicide. Um, so um, it's a sex-based hate crime term broadly defined as the intentional killing of women or girls because they are female. Um, so she was working on um, a study of religious misogynistic murders through the ages, um, in particular mm. um, sort of witch hunts, and when they arrive in Eden, um, she didn't finish this thesis. And this sort of gets brought up in one of their kind of therapy sessions back in the, in the big city of Seattle, which we don't, we don't see any establishing shots of Seattle. You know, it's all very sort of, uh, everything takes place, you know, between four walls. Yeah. Mm. He even points out that's not like you to give up. Yeah. And she says that, well, you know, the way you commented on it, you said it was glib. And then we hmm. discover that, you know, the topic of his thesis is this. She was working on it one summer while she was also looking after the toddler, Nick, while in this cabin. I mean, not an ideal writing environment by any stretch of the imagination. And at one point she abandoned the project. And what um, Willem Dafoe discovers while he's, you know, in the cabin with her is all the materials that she has amassed. And she sort of has this sort of house of horrors style, like (laughs) room where like all the like wooden surfaces are covered with these like half disintegrated cutouts and printouts and images of like medieval wood cuts, you know, like late Renaissance um, depictions of, um, of like of witches and like witch trials and witchcraft and all of that. And she's got this sort yeah. of scrapbook and like the scrapbook sort of um, is called gynocide. And it's got a picture like a Goya painting from his black paintings, which are sort of 
all about um you know like witchcraft and devil worship and 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 and, and basically the ills that the evils of society and what it made me think of um uh was like it made me actually so like there was one moment which really made me think of the shining because he's sort of flipping through this sort of scrapbook yes I know yeah. exactly what you're going to say. And her writing, sort of like as her mind unravels or whatever, she's like having this episode, right? Her writing just becomes crazy and crazy. And obviously, like, uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Like, he was using a typewriter, but still, you know, it's that kind of... Yeah, it's yeah. the same idea. It's the same idea, uh, which I thought was very powerful. Another film, which it quite obviously made me think of, I'm sure you will agree. Speaking of uh, witchcraft. Speaking of witchcraft through the ages, mm. um, Hexen, um, Benjamin Christensen's um, like really famous like documentary film from 1922. You know, yeah, one of the earliest kind of yeah. horror films and A very kind Danish of unique for its film. time. It's I very do unique. recommend it. It's very unique for its time. Um, I mean, Christensen, it's nearly a hundred years old. It's crazy. It's absolutely yeah. crazy. Um, it's um, so Christensen, like quite famously, appears as the devil in the film. Um, and it's just got, you know, some of the most incredible imagery. Um, but what's even more interesting about it is it talks about how women have been, it has a discussion of the contemporary period. So of the 1920s saying that, oh, the women who are committed to mental institutions, you know, when we talk about hysteria, is this not like when we used to burn witches and dismiss women solely on the basis of them being women. So it's an exceptionally, yeah. it's a very radical statement. And, you know, and it's a fellow Danish filmmaker who at the time, I mean, he was not voicing a popular opinion, you know? Um, and then, and then obviously like, um, you know, we, we've said that all roads lead to dryer, um, but obviously, uh, there's a lot of Dreyer in this, you know, there are a lot of, I think, direct and indirect references to Dreyer. Um, I mean, both uh, like Passion of St. Joan of Arc, but also Vampire um, and also Day of Wrath, um, which sort of like, again, talks about intolerance, social prejudice, men against women, um, patriarchy. Um, so, so yeah, I think, again, another thing, like apart from the fact that there is minimal characterization but both Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsborough appear as like fully rounded, real characters, like real people of flesh and blood on the screen, not, not merely, you know, ciphers or whatever. Another strength of this film is the fact that although it sort of, it weaves these themes in, are women evil? You know, there's this idea that, um, so Charlotte, like, like part of her mental breakdown while working on this thesis was that eventually she convinced herself that women truly were evil. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's it sort of, and, and also, you know, she talks about nature being Satan's church and the idea that like men's bodies are governed by God, but women's bodies are governed by nature. Um, you know, the idea of the, um, like the parallels between women's menstrual cycles and the moon, you know, that, a woman's menstrual cycle lasts roughly 28 days and it's quite often in sync with the moon. So most women menstruate either on a full moon or a dark moon, a new moon, you know, so like for like since the dawn of ages, you know, this, this parallel has not been lost. 
on 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 men you know and so there was always and the fact that like a woman can carry life in her womb you know it's all very sort of like a woman is governed by these these cycles and these processes that that can't fully be understood um and you know and this idea that well if nature is evil you know and we are seen like we are faced with the evil realities of nature i'm hoping you can talk about this actually like the animals the three <laughs> beggars all of that um i think honestly watching the making of documentary for antichrist scarred me for life like watching them like produce all the visual effects for this it's just i think the visual effects are more disgusting honestly than actually like seeing the the end result on the screen so it sort of you know it hints at like it it sort of mentions in conversation all of these themes witchcraft are women evil um you know na- nature is uh, Satan's church but it's not heavy-handed and it does not mm. give you answers that's another thing i think one of the most frustrating things about antichrist and i feel like it this is more clear now watching this in 2021 that it would have been watching this when this came out in 2009 is that it does not give you easy answers it's sort of like i wouldn't say it's morally ambiguous but it's certainly not it's not a theological thesis and um no, and last venture i discovered like actually to my surprise, is is a is a Catholic convert. Do you know that he converted to Catholicism? Actually, quite. Uh, I know he was an atheist for a lot of his life, but yeah. I didn't know. Well, I that. absolutely. So he quite recently, um, well, actually before Antichrist, but he actually converted to Catholicism, which is, um, I mean, for a Danish uh, atheist. <laughs> This is quite a turn of events, and it's almost it's just a little bit like um, Alexei Balabanov, who became an Orthodox convert, you know, later in his life, and his later films are much more concerned with like theological themes, good and evil, you know, the church or like faith. Um, this is certainly the case. I think the fact that Lars von Trier would have been would have converted to Catholicism by the time he made Antichrist, Melancholy, and Nymphomaniac, which incidentally also discusses themes of witchcraft, you know, women getting together to do evil things, you know, lead men astray, mm. um, et cetera. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. In many ways, it makes it even more interesting for me personally, you know, than if it, this has been, but this had been just a formal experiment. Yeah, yeah, a lot there. This is why it's important to uh, have a woman's perspective with a lot of this stuff because, yeah, there's uh, no way I'd have been able to get anywhere near that amount from from all that. So, yeah, thank you. That was really, really interesting. Thank you. Uh, woman to man, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the work we're doing here now is is maybe healing the divide between the sexes in some small way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, indeed, doing doing the good work, as they say. So you mentioned Carl Theodore Dreyer and how all roads lead to Dreyer. This film and a lot of Von Trier's other films are heavily indebted to Andrei Tarkovsky. This one literally is dedicated at the end of the film to Tarkovsky. Now, I mentioned way way earlier in this show near the start the epidemic had a lot of very obvious kind of visual notes to tarkovsky's films particularly the scene in solaris where the main character is driving to the airport 
I think. So he's been convinced to go to space and he's driving and it's a very kind of pivotal scene in the film. Very, very incredibly well done. I mean, fuck, it's Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky is amazing. But this film has several nods to Tarkovsky as well. A lot of which I kind of found out from listening to the director's commentary of, of the film itself. So, for example, there is a scene... Well, it's actually my favourite scene in the film. So it's the hypnosis scene. So the two main characters are on a bus going to Eden and he is trying to put her into like a hypnotic state. This is an exercise apparently they do with people kind of going through depression. It's to try and get them to sort of centre themselves or something like that. I don't know. I probably didn't describe that very well, but okay. And apparently that scene is also inspired by the car ride in Solaris because of how it's done, things like that. You've also got a scene where the rain starts very suddenly, and uh, Von Trier has mentioned that he wanted to do a scene with Tarkovsky rain, Mm. which goes from left to right, which happens, I believe, in Mirror. Well, I'd or maybe say, yeah, I'd the sacrifice. Definitely mirror, um, very elemental. Um, yes, and Tarkovsky also loves water. That's one of my favourite things about Tarkovsky is that his films all involve water as like a visual motif in some way. And that's another thing that he's tried to do and in trees. Uh, Antichrist as well. And, and trees. trees. But he remember, trees. sometimes a tree is just a tree. <laughs> <laughs> very true. So yeah, so the, my point is there's a lot of kind of Tarkovsky in this film. It's not just dedicated to him. It's like there's a lot of kind of visual kind of notes. There's a lot of um, homage to uh, Tarkovsky in this film. I feel like we haven't really talked about kind of the film itself in terms of the way it looks and kind of uh, the techniques used. So I want to do that now because, uh, yeah, we've talked a lot about kind of, you know, a lot of other stuff, but not that. So the cinematography in this film is, I think, absolutely amazing. And the cinematographer in the film is Anthony Dodd Mantle. Now, Anthony Dodd Mantle is most well known for his work with Danny Boyle, particularly on Slumdog Millionaire, of which he won an Oscar. But he's also done 28 Days Later, which, for the type of film that is, is yeah. fucking great I'm cinematography. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan. But interestingly enough, I mean, he had previously worked with Von Trier on Dogville. Hence probably why that film looks really great as well. But Von Trier is not the only Danish director that Dodd Mantle has ever worked with. He worked with Thomas Vinterberg on Festen, which is an amazing film, by the way. Highly recommend that to anyone who hasn't seen it. And, strangely, Julian Donkeyboy, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, so, yes, he, he. my point is he's worked not only with Von Trier before, but he's worked in Danish cinema before as well and yeah the cinematography although it's not the sort of classic kind of von trier cinematography that i associate with his films sort of in the 90s it's there's a lot of color grading in there as well and the color grading is great now the last show i did talked about grotesque and how i hated the color grading in that film i thought it was awful couldn't see anything it all looked brown and just yeah just really ugly this film i would say the major color in the palette is green now that's very obvious it's sort of in the middle of like the woods and there's trees and grass everywhere but even the interior scenes a lot of the uh major colors that i noticed were green and blue Mm. so 
I thought that was uh, very interesting. And yeah, like you said, sort of a lot of the scenes with the animals are done like with visual effects. So <laughs> covering your eyes. Yeah. No. Yeah. So there's a scene with uh, a deer with a stillborn kind of foal kind of coming out of it. It's a fawn. And- I had to look this up. Oh, right. A-, a baby, a baby deer is a fawn. Okay. Well, anyway, there's a stillborn fawn. Try saying that three times fast. Stillborn uh, fawn, stillborn fawn, stillborn fawn. <laughs> <laughs> and that was done in a very interesting way where what they had to do was the people who were behind like sort of the uh, special effects in the film had to basically take like a prosthetic fawn and sort of attach it to the, uh, the deer. And then what they did was they added in post-production some sort of visual effects to make it look like it was, you know, stillborn, like it just come out and make it look more realistic. Same with the fox. So the fantastic Mr. Fox in the film. Uh, Can I just infamous- interrupt you? This right. was on Willem Dafoe's filmography. He's even been in that. He voiced the rat. <laughs> As well he should have. As well he should have. Yeah, so there we go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, he, he meets someone who he would appear in a film with in future for Wes Anderson, yes. So there's a fox who appears to be kind of self-emboweling himself, which is, yeah, it's not super clear. Like, the fox looks Nature dead originally. Nature is gross, is the main point, I think. Nature is metal. That's what the subreddit's called. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, so this fox then uh, utters the immortal line, Chaos, Chaos Reigns, Reigns. Yeah. which comes from a shamanic journey that Lars von Trier yeah. says that he went what on. What is that all about? Like... I did not realize he was like full on David Lynch transcendental meditation since the 70s. You would 70s. expect like Gaspar Noe yeah, to say something honestly, like this. Poor Gaspar is recovering from some horrible brain hemorrhage. I really wish him a speedy recovery. It's it's been, you know, quite, you know, quite unwelcome news. So hang on in there Gaspar, we need you. Um also, I did not realize that he was like full on bonkers. He was talking about, you know, honestly, like he's just like like super chill, just doing like his thing. And then he just randomly in the interview starts saying, like, oh yeah, by the way, like a lot of the symmetry comes from my shamanic journeys. You know, I bring imagery back yeah. from the journeys and um I use my dreams as input. And you're just like, which part of this is like Scandinavian grounded and sound? None of it. No, mate. You've co- converted to Catholicism and you're going on shamanic journeys. It's almost like I'm almost disappointed. And yeah, Gaspar Noe is like by far the most like conventional. Like he's just like, yeah, I'm an atheist. Mind you, he might like that. It would be like super cool if he like rediscovered his Catholic faith. I mean, he's like, He's got Argentinian and like Irish background, you know, so it would be like, I don't know, maybe he should go Orthodox, you know, like Orthodox Christian, or maybe he should convert to Islam. That would be like super interesting, I think, especially like in the French context, you know, I mean, I think it's going to happen. I think the Fox should convert to Islam. Controversial. (laughs) 
Oh dear. So so yes, yeah, so that's that's the scene with the fox. Uh and the other animal in the film is a crow, although in the film it's not actually played by a crow, because apparently crows are very difficult to tame. So the crow is played by a raven. And <laughs> so there's a scene in the film oh. so it's after Willem Dafoe's character has had a grindstone kind of drilled and put into his leg and he's hiding from Charlotte Gainsbourg underneath this sort of mound of earth essentially it's a foxhole i checked this yeah yeah okay cool so he's in a foxhole hiding from charlotte gainsbourg and there's this bird just randomly in the foxhole somehow (laughs) kind of buried (laughs) just in, in and um it, it gives away his position as these things always seem to happen in films. So it chirps and, and Willem Dafoe is kind of hitting it. He's not actually really hitting it. He's not hitting an actual bird because that would just be, you know, animal abuse. But essentially, yeah. So he, Von Trier tried to use like an actual real bird in the film and it kind of worked and didn't work in in certain ways he said like in the director's commentary like it didn't go quite according to plan when he uh he made the scene apparently the bird was not exactly very cooperative which you know it's a bird so yeah would you, you expect know. me you know can't tame yeah, exactly. nature i thought they used a puppet i didn't realize that that it was they a used a puppet bird. for some of it but uh-huh. they did try and do certain shots with an actual bird yeah in it as well. I, I get it i mean it's it's like um it's a full-on fight you know obviously i'm rooting for the bird you know but um but willem defoe wins i think he smashes this poor bird to pieces yes but they they get I think the comeuppance in the end, because they are all still around at the end of the film, the end of the film of which is very enigmatic and very open-ended. But going back to sort of the visual style of the film, it's very interesting. So you've got a kind of a mix of Von Trier's sort of traditional kind of handheld style where it's sort of the, the documentary style, although it doesn't have quite the same documentary feel as his sort of 90s films do, for example, because of the colour grading, I think. Yeah. And also, um, you mentioned Von Trier likes to film, you know, be the cameraman. Um, he couldn't do that because he was depressed and obviously, like, you know, there were times when he couldn't sort of, you know, be on set, oh, for him. example. He, he claimed so, that he gave his 40% to this film. I'm just thinking, like, if that's your 40%, you know, shame on everyone else, you know. And besides, like, another thing, like, I, I said that the making of um, a film, like, documentary – kind of scarred me for life. I mean, I did not realize just how involved a lot of these like production processes are. I mean, there's like a whole, I mean, there's, there's like a whole industry behind this film, you know, it's um like his company, uh, is it Zentropa? Yeah, look how long the end credits are for like every film. <laughs> like- I mean, there's just, there are so many people, like so many like super talented competent people working on every single tiny aspect of the film i mean for instance like one thing that really impressed me that i just somehow did not you know i did not realize um so there's um there's a piece of music that appears in the infamous um prologue during the super stylized black and white sex scene between Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg during which Nick the toddler who does have a name 
um, falls out of the window. Um, and it's um, Handel's um, Lashia Chio Pianga, which means Lead Me to Weep. And it's part, um, and it's from the opera Ronaldo. And it's um, it's a it's a well, it's a rock opera. Um, there's a um, a soprano who is um, you know, singing these words. You know, leave me to weep, leave me to express my sorrow, um, which is you know very it's very symbolic of everything that 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 happens. You know, everything that unfolds in many ways. If uh, if 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 Willem Bungler Defoe would have just left Charlotte Gainsbourg in the capable hands of the medical establishment, <laughs> heavily sedated, medicated, and strapped down, uh, none of this would have happened. Exactly. Um, but um, the piece, you know, they didn't simply license a recording of this. They actually got some of the best. They recreated it. They re with it. Yeah, they re they recorded it in a like an, an actual baroque music room, uh, like in a baroque music hall in Denmark. You know, they recruited all these like chamber musicians, had them perform this piece. You know, having been, you know, made aware of the scene and like what it represents, and you know, it's just it's just incredible. I mean, on the one hand, it's great that they have the budget and and clearly like the state support to do this because I'm sure like the Danish like, um, like I'm pretty sure the Danish Ministry of Culture would have been like involved, you know, in this process and stuff. Um, um, but also, you know, that's that's kind of one example. I mean, you mentioned the the sound design was also very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was. So how they did the score in this film is very unique. It's very kind of Von Trier-esque, I would say. So what Von Trier told the sound designer to do for the film is apparently he had to use something from nature in every single piece that he created. So what he would do, for example, is he would take, like, you know how, like, you can blow into blades of grass and it creates a sound? like he would do that and record it and then he would sort of modify it in post-production and then use that to kind of create the tones and it works really well because the score for this film i would say is one of my favorite things about it because it's very kind of kubrick-esque in a lot of ways there's a lot of these kind of atonal notes and the way the score works is very different from a traditional horror film i think with a lot of horror fans, they don't like this film so much because it's very different. This is what happens when you have a director who's not a horror director, in inverted commas, makes a horror film, and they use none of the standard kind of cliches, and people don't know what to do. So he does use certain horror tropes, like there's a jump scare in it. So the fox appears in a jump scare, and the jump scare is done in a certain way. Like, it made me jump. <laughs> and the music does kind of come in from out of nowhere. It's the music, really, that sort of adds to, to the effect of a jump scare. But a lot of the kind of horrific elements, they take place like with no score, for example. Mm-hmm. Similar to Audition, like we talked about. And I always find like that that adds to the effect when you don't have a score kind of telling you what to feel or just blaring over the top of what's happening kind of inanely or anything like that. So anyway, I thought the score was really awesome and really added to the effect and the unease of the film when it is really uneasy. Or even like in the hypnosis scene that I mentioned, it adds to the kind of feeling of, like I find it very relaxing, 
that scene. Mm. Like I actually do kind of feel myself kind of in a hypnotic trance as well. And the, the score and the way, like just to sort of round off the, the stuff I was talking about with the uh, cinematography, mm. like with these monumental scenes that I was talking about, like the scene in the intro, for example. Another interesting element to, to the cinematography was um, something that Anthony Dodd-Mandel mentioned on the documentary. He, uh, he and Lars called, um, called it the anxiety montages. So those are deconstructed, decomposed images, sort of close-ups of different parts of Charlotte Gainsbourg's body, showing the different symptoms of, um, of panic attacks like palpitations, shaking, uh, like trembling fingers, you know, that sort of thing. And apparently they use some special kind of lens to create them. And, you know, the, the, like, I think initially they just used it, I mean, I I guess as a formal experiment, Um, but they decided to, to keep them in. I actually thought those scenes, like those little kind of almost visual vignettes, they really, really added to like constructing like the overall, um, uh, like tension, you know, like the, the visual tension of the film. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I ask, when you're watching the uh, behind-the-scenes documentaries, yeah. when you uh, watch the behind-the-scenes documentary with the special effects guys, does that immediately kind of make you feel more at ease when you know that, for example, Charlotte Gainsbourg isn't actually cutting off her clitoris, that it's a, a model um... and things like that? Because what I was going to say is it sort of nicely segues into mm-hmm. kind of uh, one of the last things that I actually wanted to talk about on the episode today, which is around sort of the, uh, let's say, more kind of gruesome parts of the film. So you've got sort of a lot of violence in there kind of near the end. So, for example, and, and a lot of it is, I don't know, it's sort of, I don't know if it's for shock value or if it's for effect. I'm not entirely sure kind of what it really means in inverted commas, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's quite effective. So you've got things like, uh, Willem Dafoe's character being hit in the groin with a log, which <laughs> causes him to ejaculate blood, which is, uh, very cannibal corpse. <laughs> say that much. If you know, you know. Uh, if you know, you know, exactly. Um, <clears throat> she drills a hole in his leg and puts a grindstone in there, like I already mentioned, which is sort of torture porny. This is kind of the closest that it gets to torture porn. You haven't got like Willem Dafoe being kind of tied to a chair and having all these horrible things done to him in that way, but you do have him kind of being knocked out and kind of shagged out in that kind of way where he's absolutely knackered and like, you know, having something kind of st- drilled into his leg you know against his will all that kind of stuff and then yeah you've got sort of you know charlotte gainsbourg cutting off her clitoris with a pair of scissors you know which ties into sort of what you were saying earlier about gynocide yeah yeah gynocide well um i think it's important to just say um a few words about the um the the clitorectomy that charlotte gainsbourg's character performs on herself um, um, probably, uh, probably hands down the single, uh, most, uh, gruesome thing that happens on screen in Antichrist. Um, uh, it's, um, it, it, it's sort of, um, it, we, we do see, I mean, yeah, we know it's a model, but, um, I have to say that 
I saw this film, I first saw this film, um, I think in 2010. And I was amazed watching it in 2021, just how well I remembered it. I almost, you know, remembered it scene by scene by scene, even the kind of more um, wordy, you know, uh, therapy session uh, dialogues. I actually had a very good recollection of them. But something which I, you know, probably the reason why I I wouldn't have rewatched this film had you not taken me on this uh, horror ride um, was the, um, the the clitorectomy scene when Charlotte Gainsbourg's character takes a large pair of rather rusty looking but sharp <laughs> scissors and cuts off her clitoris. Now. This is um, is this is difficult to watch because it looks very realistic. You don't have time to pause and tell yourself, "Oh, I'm sure this is practical effects." It looks very real. It looks horrible. Um, I kind of um, I kind of uh, chuckled when you said in your August Underground episode that there were scenes um, in it that made you regret having a penis. Um, honestly, <laughs> this was one such moment for me. I, I cannot imagine anything uh, more, you know, physically uh, taxing, but also horrifying. You know, the implications of it are horrifying. Um, Charlotte Gainsbourg is performing, uh, you know, a self-circumcision. Um, and in, in, in many ways, she is, is cutting herself off from the pleasure that she would have felt, you know, in the act while her child was falling to his death. So it's sort of the ultimate form of self-punishment, kind of the ultimate renunciation. And, and it has, um, you know, it has a sort of political um, overtones as well. Um, when I was um, doing a bit of research for, for the episode, I was kind of quite um, intrigued by the word gynocide because it's like I, I knew what it meant, but it's not really something that's in common usage really in the political discourse or in fact in scholarly literature. There was a book that came out in um, 2007, which um, I don't think Lars von Trier necessarily would have come across, but it sort of um, was a case of, you know, um, things on a similar theme manifesting at a similar time. And it's quite interestingly called gynocide, hysterectomy, so the removal of the womb of the uterus, hysterectomy, capitalist patriarchy, and the medical abuse of women. And it's by an Italian scholar by Maria Rosa della Costa. Well, she's the editor. It's a collection of, of essays. So, you know, gynocide and then essentially medically sanctioned forms of, of bodily mutilations performed on women, and it's the idea that for centuries, the medical establishment, which is dominated by men, has perpetuated, you know, essentially all of these acts of, of, of torture and crime. So um, Hexen, um, the, the 1920s Danish horror film, well, horror documentary that we mentioned, in fact, talks about hysteria. And, you know, and a hysteria is a diagnosis that has been, you know, um, uh, awarded um, since you know since the classical period, the idea that women were susceptible to some form of womb madness, you know that the womb was a place of madness, a source of madness, and in fact that in certain cases the only way to deal with it is to remove the womb. Um, the removal of the clitoris is in fact a practice that exists to this day that is actually happening now, like. 
we, um, we've heard about the term uh, female genital mutilation, FGM, and that's something that actually, in fact, several UK politicians have spoken against because this is something that is even being practiced within some um, immigrant communities um, in the UK. And, um, and it involves the surgical altering of the external female genitalia in order to protect a woman, you know, a, a young girl's virginity to protect her. I mean, you know, this is quote unquote, you know, the reason this is, this is absolutely like crazy shit. And I honestly, I, to say that I empathize with those who have been, you know, a victim of this torture, which is like so very real, you know, this is not this, you know, the film has been accused of being many things, including, um, including sick, you know, and in including misogynistic. But I think mm -hmm. ultimately any, any work of art that puts this issue on the agenda should be fucking rewarded because this, this is a very real problem. And I think that even though um, it's unlikely that he would have seen this book coming out at the time, even though, you know, this is not an explicitly political film, um, I think Lars von Trier was, in a way, touching on this whole kind of political and cultural issue. Awesome. Again, another reason why it's probably a good idea to have a woman on your show for these types of issues, because again probably couldn't have spoken about that myself so again i thank you for talking about that with uh such passion and knowledge um so to kind of uh, wrap up the show in well to kind of tie up the the loose end of the show uh, i want to quickly talk about something that i think i thought was worth talking about is we've talked about okay all these different things about the film whether it's misogynistic, all this kind of stuff. And ultimately, I think the uh, the question has to be, does the film actually have a meaning? So I would say, personally, I'm not really sure it does have a meaning, ultimately. A lot of the dialogue is talking about sort of, you know, psychiatry and kind of all these different topics that admittedly kind of go a bit over my head. Um, I mean, I'm not kind of, you know, I'm, I'm, this is probably going to make me sound like an idiot, but it's not really the idea. A lot of kind of allegorical or kind of metaphorical content does kind of, you know, go over my head, shall we say. So if there is kind of a deeper meaning to this film, then, you know, quite frankly, it escapes me. But Von Trier himself, I think, would even say that it doesn't have any kind of allegorical content like we talked about. And this kind of extends to the ending. So the ending is very open to interpretation, shall we say. So what happens for those of you who haven't seen the film, or even if you haven't, so Willem Dafoe essentially strangles Charlotte Gainsbourg to death. It's very violent. You know, it's uh, might be the most kind of violent yeah, act that happens in the absolutely. film that doesn't involve a pair of scissors. Oh goodness, we're past that point already. I've spoken about it. Yes, yeah, no. But anyway, not not to again. not to put a too fine a point on it. But yes, yeah, so he strangles her to death, and then he sets her body on fire, and then he leaves Eden to presumably, you know, try and go to a hospital. <laughs> or something like that 
and he sees the free beggars, so he sees the free animals, and then as he's leaving, all these, I think they're meant to be faceless women who maybe have died, I, I don't know. So what? all these women appear and they don't have faces. Well, and, and they're wearing period clothing. Happy. Wearing- and they are wearing period co- clothing, yes. So these could be ghosts of women who died in the area appearing. If you're of a certain persuasion, you could say that this is, you know, the the forces of the womenkind coming to extract their vengeance on him. Maybe well, I don't personally agree with that. It's an interpretation. They seem benign, and he he gets well clear of them by the end. Um, so just very quickly, I was really kind of almost shocked. I mean, the whole shamanic journeys thing was a revelation for me. But another right. quite interesting thing, which was, I don't know, a little bit, was that apparently Lars von Trier showed Charlotte Gainsbourg strangulation videos that he had found online, you know, um, and he wanted the scene <laughs> to look very real and he wanted it right. to last for as long as possible. And then actually she said that the strangulation scene actually felt dangerous and that it was like the biggest challenge to her, you know, like throughout this whole film. So... You know, right. I think there's uh, kind of a real um, sort of dangerous undertone to to that to that um, to that vision. You know, I don't think Lars von Trier is is all fun and games and fluff and allegory. You know, there's something very dark that he was not just articulating but tapping into when making this film, and it should not be glossed over. No, no, certainly not. But I think that we were talking before we started recording Mm. about how a lot of critics similar to Noe, actually, basically they, you know, dismiss these films out of hand. They just go, Oh, it's really violent. Mm. Oh, it's really misogynistic. All this kind of stuff. And I think it's a really good film. I think it's very well made. The cinematography is awesome. You know, it's particularly like, monumental scenes Mm. like i mentioned you know the opening in itself i mean is kind of unintentionally hilarious in a lot of ways unfortunately because you've got close up of people's girding faces particularly willem dafoe your favorite and yeah i like the sort of shamanic scenes the the stuff with the animals didn't put me off um a lot of people find the stuff with the fox silly but i know it worked for me silly i think it is and that's the point it's sort of, it's quite grotesque. It's quite, it's trippy, you know? And actually, you know, just to, to answer the question, does this film have a meaning? You're like, does Eraserhead have a meaning? You know, does Enchant Andalou have a meaning? It's, um, it's so surrealist. It's so like dreamlike and crazy and like, let's open this can of worms and like, let's turn over this rock and see what lives under it. You know, in a way, I feel like it doesn't, it's good that it does not arrive at any kind of definitive conclusion. I like that it's ambiguous, but it's not lazy. It's not sloppy. It's open-ended. I like it. Yeah. So the monumental scenes, like I said, I like those, like the hypnosis scene, even like the uh, close-up where it focuses in on the uh, the stems of the flowers that Willem Dafoe's character has bought at the beginning of the film. Even like the little kind of, you know, nature type scenes where, I don't know, it does feel kind of of nature, like the acorns kind of falling on the uh, roof of the cabin, or even like Willem Dafoe's hand being covered in ticks at one point. Even that 
kind of I don't know you, you do get a sense you're sort of of the earth so to speak um a lot of the dialogue kind of I don't know it escapes me quite frankly it's just the story is very simple. It's not Bergman. So I don't know. A lot of that stuff kind of was a bit of a problem to me, but that might just be me. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, I think it's a worthwhile film. Absolutely not one to be dismissed no. out of hand. And uh, yeah, horror fans like what's wrong with you? You know, this is uh, definitely a good horror film. This is one of my favorite horror films of the 2000s of which admittedly they're not that many. The 2000s was not a great, decade for horror quite frankly but yeah 2009 better late than never i was quite quite amused to learn that Lars von trier had been inspired quite a bit by uh, like ringu before he made this that actually like j j horror made an impact on him oh wow so there you go all ties together it all ties together in a meta narrative of worst eight movies ever season what number season is this this is season three yeah they all watch each other's films as well. Like they're all inspired yeah. by each other. Like Hanukkah, Von Trier, No Way, No Way. Yeah, something yeah. that like really actually puzzled me was just how how in conversation Luke's Eterna was with like all of this that we're talking about. You know, Charlotte Gainsbourg um, behind the scenes making a film, witches. Dryer, yeah, yeah. It's just, there's just so much. Um, in fact, um, it, one of the sets from Luke Saterna, where Charlotte Gainsbourg walks into this like special effects room where there's like a rubber, uh, like corpse, and she's talking to the nanny and she's trying to talk to her child. It really, <laughs> really reminded me of the special effects room in the making of documentary of Antichrist, where they had these like limbs and you know bits lying around it just um really kind of just made me smile actually yeah yeah you'll find a lot of uh special effects rooms like that it's just they've got different budget levels so you know the the budget for the special effects on august underground is going to be different for the level of budget on this film for example i wonder it's the same idea I wonder what the budget for this was, actually. I'm curious. It wasn't that much. It was, 3.4 uh, in the, uh, million fu- dollars, and it made yeah. $7.4 million. Yeah. It's quite funny you mentioned that. So uh, one of the interesting things, I think, in the film is sort of how foggy the woods are, particularly yeah. in the second half of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, to kind of show you kind of how low the budget that is, he said that you know on higher-budget films what you can do is with, with scenes where you need like lots of fog in the open air, you'll wait for a day where there isn't actually that much of a breeze, mm-hmm. but on a film like that, you just have to go. And you know, if there's a breeze, it just blows away all your fog. So you're fucked. You have to just start again <laughs> or sort of be, be creative. So, uh, so yeah, so that's the perils of shooting on a lower budget film, even for someone like Lars von Trier. So there you go. How beautiful. Do you know what film I'm actually quite tempted to watch immediately as a follow-up to this discussion? Oh, so go on. What, what should the listeners watch? Well, I haven't after seen Antichrist? it, so I'm not recommending it, but it's been on my list for a while and it sort of ties into this psychosexual theme. I really now feel like watching Oshima's 1976 in the realm of the senses. Oh, wow. 
I was actually going to suggest that, believe it or not. I thought it might be something that you're quite interested in. I am quite interested in that. And uh, we mentioned strangulation. Well, that's a strangulation film par excellence. And I'm merely referring to what I know of it. I haven't actually seen it. So, Yeah. So in the realm of the senses, arguably a bad date movie. Audition, we've already established, bad date movie, irreversible, very, very bad date movie. But Antichrist... How bad is it? So I'm going to put this to you in two different ways. So first of all, as a date movie, how bad is Antichrist? So is it good? No. Is it not so bad? No. Is it bad? Is it very bad or is it the worst? I'd say it's not so bad. Oh, wow. I was not expecting you to say <laughs> that. Okay. Why? Um, I, uh, well, just... As a quick aside, I'm really glad that after over a decade, I still have the power to surprise you, Greg. Just saying. Mm. And and <laughs> secondly, um, it's a beautiful aesthetic uh, art piece that kind of unfolds at, at its own leisurely pace. Um, I mean, honestly, the thing that's really horrible is, yeah, the clitorectomy horrible it's horrible okay that's the thing that had me wincing for years literally until you made me watch it again and now i'm sort of over it in fact i'm happy i'm happy to have seen it the second time that was in many you're ways. turning into me yeah well um <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's honestly it's not that bad yeah he kills her but somehow the whole thing just it feels too allegorical you know, to really, it doesn't, like, for instance, um, something right. like Geg and Divand, um, head on, yeah. Tia Keen, that is like open heart surgery. Like, that feels so real. You know, that feels like, I don't know, that feels like real life. I don't know what that says about right. me. Right. Can I stop you? does not feel like real life. Right. So, film is allegorical when we've kind of said that it isn't really an allegory for anything. But anyway, <clears throat> I thought that was interesting that you said that. So just just to confirm, so head on, bad date movie, even though I don't think it is really, but never mind. But anyway, previous show that you did, Audition, yep. which I said was only a bad date movie, and you were so shocked that we had like a five-minute conversation about it, and you were trying to say, no, it's a very bad date movie, what are you talking about? Yeah. Whereas this, clitorectomy and all, yeah. it's not that bad. Not that bad at all. What are you talking about? Well, okay, fine. It's bad. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's not. Good. I talked you up to bad. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Fine. I mean, if we were to compare, like, I think compared to something like Dancer in the Dark, like Dancer in the Dark actually had me like crying. Yeah. And just feeling like I hate humanity. You know, like honestly, people. Yeah, so sorry to cut you, but this was actually going to be my next question. Yeah. So basically, of all of Von Trier's films that I have basically made you, well, you wanted to watch. Yeah. But for the gimmick, let's say that I I forced you like an absolute bastard to watch. Don't give yourself that show. (laughs) Um, Which one would you say is the worst date movie of all of his films? Uh, Dancer in the Dark, hands down. It's just distressing. It's emotionally distressing. Um, and it's sort of like, it, in many ways, it's a melodrama. 
you know, it's very like uh, you are quite predictably being led down this down this down this path, you know, or ends in tears, it ends in death, you know, it ends in the sort of martyrdom of the main character who's very sympathetic, quite helpless, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, dancer in the dark, hands down. Um, I think the problem with um, Antichrist and you know the the date movie question is that it's just it's just so damn beautiful, you know. It's um it's just so so beautiful. It's um it's almost like you know the beauty of it redeems the horror. Yeah, yeah. I uh, fuck yeah. I can I can see that. I get that. Um, as far as me i would say it's a bad date movie Mm. i certainly wouldn't say it's good i would say it's also sort of too kind of well made for it to be like a very very bad date movie Mm -hmm. like and this was sort of my argument with audition as well where there is violence but the violence only happens in like the last third of the film i mean i probably wouldn't watch it on a date because it might give one of you ideas (laughs) like while you're watching it but actually, or, come to think of it, it is bad because the sex scenes are horrible. I think that whole like psychosexual aspect of it just is not, yeah, is not conducive. Yeah, but it does have some amazing imagery. I haven't even, believe it or not, no. as long as this episode has been, I haven't even mentioned the scene where they are having sex, what appears to be under a tree, and there are all these hands coming out of the roots, sort of Ooh. under the tree itself, which is a very arresting visual image, I'd say. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's like, I don't know, like it reminded me a little bit of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> okay. No, it did. You know, with the tree, with the, like with the heads, with the severed heads. I, mean, I, get, I know what you're trying. I, I get it, but it's, it's quite funny. It's, yeah. it's quite different, obviously, but at the same time, mm, it's got just that. A bit, yeah. You know, it's got that fairy tale feel um, to um, it. It's got it's a, it's yeah, a gothic yeah. fairy tale. That's what I mean. It's yeah. like um, La Belle à la Bête by Cocteau. It's sort of which that I haven't kind seen, of aesthetic. Which uh, which was one it's of H.R. Giger's favorite films, believe it or not. That really it scared him when he saw it as a as a child, and it influenced a lot of his um, a lot of his work, and um, especially this idea of like disembodied limbs and things like that. So. Yeah, so so Antichrist, like however bad a date movie it is, it's still a bad date movie. And I agree with you. Uh, I would say of all of Von Trier's films, Dancer in the Dark is the worst film to watch on a date, which kind of goes to show, and this is something that I've always thought, and it's nice to see that I've been proved correct, mm-hmm. where you can have all the physical violence you want, you can have torture. You've got a film with no torture where you have a central character that you are emotionally invested in and then bad shit happens to them, to put it mildly, and some of it is kind of just almost banally kind of shit and things go from bad to worse and they end up in sort of... Yeah, it it's just a very kind of gut-wrenchingly hard film to watch for many reasons. And this is by far a worse date movie than Antichrist. Yeah, so there you yeah go. absolutely. And in many ways, that film, for all its stylization and breaking into song and dance, um, it feels a lot more real. Like, this is what I mean. Like, there's much more of a kind of, like a realism, like a hard-hitting realism, you know? Like, the reason why 
Um, the reason why I, I keep bringing up head on, but honestly, it's a film that like really affects me. Like it really affects me emotionally. Like it just, um, and I'm not, I would not say I'm a sentimental person, um, but it really affects me. And it feels like something that like really happened. Like something that every time I watch it, you know, it feels like um, it's not far removed from everyday life. It's happening somewhere, you know, it's unfolding, you know, but with Antichrist, it's, it feels real within the universe of the film, but it's um, it, its function is not so much to depict everyday reality. We like you know the the like the vagaries of human relationships is to present a kind of different order of reality, kind of archetypal conflict. You know, kind of universal war, man against woman, man against nature, man against God, God against the devil, so man against crow. <laughs> acorns man against. against man bring it back to acorn yeah. man versus acorns definitely and that's i think the best way to uh end the show i would say on uh, the acorny note of which oaks will grow no doubt so this has been a super epic show this has been by far the most epic show i think i've ever done in my life uh of which I've had a fucking grand old time talking about this film. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to it. I want to thank once again, Miroslava Hartman for coming on the show. Can I, uh, convince you to come on again, the next series? Maybe. Uh, you can, you can, you can. Awesome. So there you go. So the next series of, uh, West Eight news ever near the end of the year. Yes. Miroslava will be back. So Miroslava, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show once again. And I'm, yeah, this has been awesome. I'm not really sure kind of what else to say other than on the next show, I'm going to be talking about a film from Serbia, one of the worst date movies ever by far, probably the most disturbing film of the 2010s. Uh, it's a film where all kinds of bad shit happens. And I don't want to hex myself, but if things happen that I want to happen, it's definitely going to be an episode that you're going to want to listen to. And I'm going to say no more than that. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening to the show. I hope you guys all made it through to the end. And uh, yeah, I'll see you on the next show. More of the worst date movies ever, motherfuckers. Thank you for listening. If you want to follow me on social media, you can at Worst Date Movies Ever. And don't forget to click subscribe wherever you're listening to this right now to never miss another episode of Worst Date Movies Ever. <laughs>